2: And even... Checkout's not until 4, so...
0: Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day.
2: This is the best of OutKick, the coverage with Clay Travis on Fox Sports Radio. We go live, I believe, to Paris, where he has already moved from Russia. He is Stu Holden. He called the game yesterday. Many of you were watching as France took down Croatia. Stu, uh, first of all, was this the best World Cup ever?
1: Uh, yes, and and first of all, I, I came to Paris anticipating a couple days relaxing with my wife <laughs> after a long month, and we have found out that the uh, parade tonight for the World Cup trophy is about three blocks from our hotel. So, oh, that is uh, fantastic. That is not going to be very quiet.
2: <laughs> uh, you obviously uh, you called the game yesterday. You did a fantastic job. What was your favorite match that you either watched or called throughout the entirety of the World Cup?
1: You know, it, it, it's hard to, to pin one, because I mean, I mean, for me personally, in terms of a career milestone, calling the World Cup final is about as, as big as that gets. Uh, so that carries, you know, significant meaning. But I think I'm. I, it, it feels like about three months ago now, but uh, the first game that we did was uh, Cristiano Ronaldo in Portugal against Spain in a 3-3 game in Sochi, and that was kind of I think that was the best game that I did because it was a back-and-forth game. And then you have Ronaldo. Everybody was talking about, well, could he deliver for Portugal? And then the guy scores a hat-trick along with a free kick in like the 90th minute to tie it. And just the energy in that stadium just really kicked
2: kicked the whole thing off for me. How nervous were you before this game started yesterday?
1: Um... I I definitely had the the butterflies kind of similar to what I had as a player and and a lot of people uh, have asked me what calling a World Cup felt like compared to playing in it and and playing in it for me was the best you know best achievement in in my entire career it was something I worked my whole life for And, and nothing will ever stack up to that honestly in terms of what that felt like playing and competing in that environment but Yesterday I woke up with those kind of those little butterflies in my stomach and those those kind of nerves as I was going to the stadium. I was thinking this is a great feeling because it felt like a big game to me and and everything that was on it. And I, I had a couple texts from friends after that, you know, they were like, "Dude, you just called the effing World Cup final,"
2: which <laughs> <laughs> is it was, it was pretty cool. Which, at, by the way, at 32 years old, you know, I mean, like that—that's what's remarkable about this. Like when the U.S. hosts the World Cup in 2026 you will just be 40. You know, I mean, like that, yeah, that is I, I an insanely young Yeah, I know, i thought about that. It's kind of age.
1: surreal.
2: <laughs> uh, to, to, to be breaking this down. All right, let's go to the game yesterday. Uh, so France wins. I, I imagine you would agree that France was probably the best team throughout the totality of the tournament. I don't remember them really having any deficit other than in the Argentina game in the round of 16, they were down for a very short amount of time. Was France the best team throughout the World Cup in your opinion?
1: Uh, it's hard to say no because they're the champions at the end of it. But I, I don't remember a game where they were were playing this beautiful soccer that we you know we had come to learn uh, from this team. Um, but what's interesting is that they found the right recipe and the find the right balance that works for them. And, and a lot of times in these tournaments, it's it's who's harder to beat uh, as opposed to who's the, the the best team in terms of like stylistically. Because still yesterday, I thought Croatia probably were the better team on the day. But, you know, France get a penalty. They get a set piece. uh, And then you have Mbappe and Pogba who produce these two wonder goals. And that ends up being the difference. So I think at this level, when when the margins are so small and you have guys that can can create differences like that, and a guy like Mbappe who's going to be a world superstar, uh, well, he already is coming into this, and now everybody knows his name. I I just think that was the difference. and, And France, top to bottom, I think were the best team.
2: So the penalty kick, the penalty kick obviously had the, uh, the, the own goal by Croatia off the set piece. And then you had the goal that came back on the other side to tie it at one. If you were the lead official in that game, would you have called a penalty kick there?
1: I I would have, I'm interested in your take too, because this is a, this is a new thing for soccer, the the video review. and, And a lot of people have had mixed feelings on it. And You know, I'm I'm curious from your perspective of what that was like from you know from a viewer of of kind of the drama of waiting for that penalty to be called.
2: Yeah, well, first of all, you have that incredible signal where the guy like makes the television screen to let everybody (laughs) know that he's yeah, yeah, like to let everybody know that he's going to go over there, and then so much of watching his reaction to me is waiting to see the players react because they're going to hear his call. When he says, OK, we're going to have a penalty kick or we're not. And you either see the French team in that situation react with you know joy or you see the Croatian team react with joy because they're like, OK, let's get on with the game. So I, I think this is and, and, I, and you're a sports fan in general. But what I would equate this to is to me, the awarding of a penalty kick is so incredibly significant from an officiating perspective that there is nothing else like it in sports, right? I mean, the closest thing I could say in American sports would be a pass interference penalty that's like 60 yards down the field in the NFL where you get a spot of the foul call and it kind of sets you up for a scoring opportunity or not based on whether or not that judgment call is made. But for people out there who were watching this, this, uh, this final, you said you thought it was the right call. Why was it the right call there in your mind?
1: Well, and this is actually why the review is has come into play and first of all i hate that ti flag 60 yards down the field yeah, right on the goal line um but you know because th- th- it was a handball and and the guy moves his hand towards the ball to it's a deliberate attempt it was actually missed by the referee and so you think that so that
2: that's important you think he was doing that intentionally to stop the ball from going in
1: yeah, it was more of an instinctive thing. I think it's a very tough one because the, the ball comes so fast, and he, the guy misses the header in front of him, so he can't. He, I think, just instinctively his his motion is to then put his hand out, and and that to me was the the rule in soccer is is it a natural position or not? You can argue that all day. It's very yes. subjective about you know what you need to jump and, and et cetera. But you know I, I, that for me though was the one that the referee missed. He had the chance to go over and look, and it became a very significant moment because then France get another penalty. And Griezmann doesn't really miss many of those. So, you know, it's interesting about this video review, though, with this being the first time, it's the first tournament uh, in the World Cup history, I think, that had no red cards for serious foul play, no no fouls. And if you go back to the other World Cups, there was tons of them. I mean, there was – I think there was – I'm not quoting the numbers for sure, but I remember reading it was like 10 or 4 – in the last couple World Cups, this World Cup is zero, and I think players were aware that video review would be picking up stuff like that.
2: Oh, that's a really good point because one of the most famous world, uh, red flag uh, red cards of all time, obviously is Zinedine Zidane in the finale. I guess was that the two thousand. What year yeah. was that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Two thousand two. Yeah, exactly. And you're in Paris right now, where they probably still haven't forgiven him, even though he was a luminescent star. Um, So uh, a lot of people out there, okay, let's turn the page a little bit. We're talking to Stu Holden. He just called the World Cup uh, final yesterday, 4-2 France wins over Croatia. Uh, I asked the question starting off the show today, eight years from now, the U.S. is hosting the World Cup uh, along with Canada and with Mexico. I think a lot of people, the 2022 in Qatar, is not going to get the same level of attention because they're doing it in November and December during football season here in America. But 2026 in America, what is a reasonable goal as we look four years in the future and eight years in the future for the U.S. men's team? If you were sitting there, like we just said, you're 32 now, you'll be 40 when that is happening in the U.S., what is a reasonable goal for U.S., knowing how difficult it is to predict four years, much less eight, but what in your mind should happen and needs to happen in order for us to be competitive at high levels internationally by the time we host in 2026?
1: Yeah, it's a great question, and, and trying to predict the future. I mean, without, i got to put this in context a little bit, but the U.S. men's national team uh, have really gone young and tried to play some of these exciting young players that we have. And right before the, the World Cup, we played France, the the winning team of the world cup with a team average of 22 years old for the united states and we tied that french team with i think it was nine of the 11 starters that started in the final and we tied them uh one one so i mean that that's a good sign it's also a french team that was cruising a little bit to get into the world cup and you know they're not going to be trying to injure themselves and going 100 miles per hour but still that was a good French team on that day, and the United States st- stood up, and some of these youngsters had some great games. So I think by 2026, our minimum goal should be the semifinals, and uh, you know, which would be the point, greatest
2: greatest season uh, I, I think, at least in the modern no, era. I don't greatest know if the, of the US ever, ever, yeah. right? Yes.
1: Yeah, our so, our high, our furthest right now is in the quarterfinals, and then and then we lost um, to to Germany on a uh, kind of a shady handball that was missed, and. Uh, we can get into the weeds there. But But I think by 2026, we absolutely, with it being in the United States, Canada and Mexico and on home soil and seeing what happened with Russia and the way that a very really average team for Russia just, you know, rode the wave of momentum and they got a good group and a couple of things fell in their favor and they beat Spain on penalties. I mean, we should absolutely be shooting for the semifinals. And I think by that point, if not, Um, then it is a total disaster, and we need to, again, look at what we're doing. So I think what happened this year with us not qualifying uh, in many ways could help us for eight years from now because all the stuff and the inquest that's gone on and all the changes to youth development and things that have been happening, which will help us in the future.
2: I started off the show also, and I've said this last week as well. That to me, this World Cup represented the death of America doesn't care about soccer guy. And you've probably heard that guy your whole life growing up in in the U.S., where you played soccer, and people say, "Oh, people don't like soccer. People don't care about the, the soccer in the United States." The U.S. is not in this World Cup at all. And the stats out there for a couple of people: more people watch the Sweet 16 round of the World Cup than watch the Sweet 16 round of the NCAA tournament. More people in America watched the final eight of the World Cup than watched the final eight of the NBA. So to kind of put that into perspective, did you feel that even though you were in Europe calling the games through social media, through the interaction that you were getting, that there was still a great deal of interest? Because I'm sure when you saw the U.S. wasn't going to make it, your first thought was, oh my god, I can't believe I'm going to Russia for over a month, and the U.S. is not even going to be involved. Uh, The end result ended up being, I think, pretty good in terms of the amount of attention that this thing got, even without the U.S. involved.
1: Yeah, and I think that secretly was our hope, but you're right. When the U.S. didn't make it, I I had a pit in my stomach i felt like i wanted to throw up but you know it was it was a disaster moment honestly even for for our fox sports but the way that everybody had kind of recovered from that and then realized that hey this is going to be a kick-ass tournament regardless and people are going to tune in people are going to watch people are going to catch the fever and and my biggest indicator is a couple of my friends that you know were casual sports fans and became soccer fans of me uh when, when i was playing now seem like the cool kids at the bars because everybody wants to turn on soccer and everybody wants to talk soccer with them. They have the slightest idea. So it, it's good. We like to welcome people in it. And quite frankly, I get tired of a uh, snobby soccer guy that says, Hey, we've, you know, it's, it's almost like taking ownership over our sport. And if people don't talk about the sport in the right way, they get all mad at other fans. I, I'm tired of that. I think that, you know, it's time for, for people to bring soccer into the the main conversation is, you know, whether it's college, I'm a big college football fan. You know that. And I'm a big Clemson guy. I love watching that. And I don't ever get the feeling that I'm watching somebody else's sport. Sometimes with soccer, I think we have a tendency to be, you know, this is the world game. How can you not like it? As opposed to being like, hey, come watch these games. These are awesome. Come to the bar. Let's watch Croatia against France, and you're going to have a great time.
2: For a lot of that, it's goal scored, right? The American anti-soccer guy is like, oh, man, we're going to have a 0-0 or nil nil score. Uh, there was a lot of goal scoring in the most recent World Cup that just finished. Is that something that is a trajectory that you think will continue because of video replay and the way they were awarding penalty kicks and everything else, or was that an aberration and you think will return to more statistically normal uh, rates of goals where there might not be as many scored? Obviously, six goals in the the final was uh, an incredible uh, explosion of goals. What do you think the trajectory of soccer going forward looks like?
1: Well, I, I hope it continues to go up <laughs> for everyone's sake. I mean, I was looking at John Strong in the final, and I, you know, I thought that one would be a one-one-nil, two-one type of game, and and we got more goals. And I think that the way that the scoring was going in at this tournament at an unprecedented rate, the Champions League, the goals were up this year in Major League Soccer, the goals are up. So, you know, maybe it's something. It'll be interesting once you know you get a full year under your belt with video review. I think we saw a lot of goals scored on set pieces. And I was thinking about this yesterday and, and talking to a number of people. I think that, you know, players are getting more open on these set plays now because everyone's aware that there's video review and they're not pulling and tugging shirts and pushing guys in the box, which is actually creating more goal scoring opportunities and actually valuing the set piece that much more. So, you know, how much more stock do you see players taking in that? And I I really think that'll kind of change the game a little bit. So if there's more scoring, I'm all for it because, and then the other the other option we have is just to throw like six six points for a score like they do in football and then everybody will say oh that that game was that game was 24 to 24 it was amazing
2: um i know your wife is probably like hey you've done enough soccer talk let's go hang out in paris what will you do in paris now and thank you for joining us the day after the world cup like what's your plan for the day
1: so uh, our executive producer from Fox actually set me up. So we we were doing the Women's World Cup next year here in, in Paris, and he set me up at a restaurant tonight with my wife, a five-star looking at the Eiffel Tower. So I am beyond excited for that. And uh, other than that, I think I'm going to go check out this parade today. I feel like I have to being in France, and it's two blocks from my hotel, and uh, I might just mix in with the, with the French fans for a minute and just enjoy it. And then back to my daughter and just off the grid for about three weeks after this.
2: By the way, when the rain hit and Putin got the first umbrella, oh, how, good how, was that? Like, how unbelievable of an ending was that for the rain to like literally just open up and then he's not wet at all. and They've got an umbrella for him. The president of Croatia and the president of France are both just standing there getting drenched. That had to be a pretty amazing look to uh, to see from your perspective.
1: Oh, it was incredible because the whole game we were seeing this lightning storm and we're, weren't sure if it was going to rain. And then, of course, there's this long delay then for the World Cup trophy and then You know, it just started dumping down and people were scattering to find umbrellas to cover President Putin. And the Croatian president, she was fantastic, just standing there in the rain. And then I don't know if you saw the moment when the World Cup trophy went by. She reached over and kissed it and like wanted to make sure she She was able to grab it at least at some point. So that's about as close as they got to the trophy this year.
2: Awesome uh, stuff as always, Stu. Have a good time. Good to enjoy the five star dinner tonight. Thank your wife for letting uh, letting you talk a little bit more soccer and enjoy diving off the grid. Great job the past month.
1: Cheers, Clay. Yeah, thanks, man.
2: Be sure to catch live editions of Outkick the coverage with Clay Travis weekdays at six a.m. Eastern, three a.m. Pacific on Fox Sports Radio and the iHeartRadio app. Just talked with Stu Holden live in Paris. I'm not sure where John Isner is now. Back from London after an epic semi-final five-setter against uh, Kevin Anderson. Uh, I was watching it on Friday. I'm sure a lot of you were as well. I believe we're joined now by John Isner. You can follow him on Twitter at John Isner, spelled like it would sound. Are you still sore?
1: Uh, you know what? First of all, uh, thanks for having me on. I'm actually not not too bad. I think you know I have I do have experience with these uh, these long matches. I think more than anything. It's uh, mentally taxing uh, as opposed to physical so of course I was a little bit sore the day after but right now I feel fine but I has got to uh, I got to be able to mentally regroup and get ready for my my tournament's uh, upcoming
2: so where are you now like so you finish that five setter for people out there who were watching on Friday it goes yeah. all the way to 26 24 so I want to start actually with that mm-hmm. what is it like in your head like at what point do you think do you think over in your head oh this could go again like the the mahout match I think that went to 7068 yeah. or whatever like are you pacing yourself at that point like how mentally as you're going through each of these games and you can kind of see okay we're going into this tie break you've got to win by two yeah. games what are you thinking mm-hmm. as the game as the match continues? yeah well, I
1: think it's very possible because there's a matchup of, of two big servers and two big servers. Serving well. On top of that, I think I was told my my opponent was in the fifth set alone was eighty percent first serve. So he, you know, Kevin, to his credit, was serving better in the fifth set than he was all match, which is which is pretty impressive. And, and it was what was disappointing is I think I had, you know, a good shot to finish that match in four sets, and it just wasn't to be. And then the fifth set got going, and we got, you know, trapped into this you know, hold, 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 hold pattern, and it just kept going and going. It was uh, a pretty surreal match, not as surreal as the one in 2010, but the fact that this was a semifinal on center court as opposed to a first round on some outer court, you know, it just made it uh, a little bit more uh, unique, I would say.
2: When you get broken and it goes to 25-24, what -hmm. do you think?
1: Well, I actually thought that it was, Funny enough, the times that he had broken me prior in, in in the match, I I ended up breaking him right back the very next game. I mean, tennis is a funny funny game like that. You could hold serve ten, twelve times in a row each each player, and then there could be two, three breaks in a row just like that. So I was still I was still holding faith, but um, I knew it was going to be a it was going to be a tough task. It just uh, it, it wasn't
2: it to be. When you walk, we're talking to John Isner, epic semifinal match, uh, 26 24. When you walk off the court and you're out of public view, for the first time? Mm-hmm. What's the first thing mm-hmm. that you want to do when you're not on that stage for the first time in six and a half hours? Like, I don't, I can't even imagine what that experience is like. I do three hours of radio yeah. every day and we're on public stage a lot. Yeah. But you're right there and everybody's looking at you. Like, what's the first thing you think? Do you exhale? I mean, what's that feeling like when you walk off the quarter? You're yeah. a little bit in shock that it's over. I, I'm just kind of curious what that experience is like. Yeah. No,
1: no, that's a, that's a very, it is a little bit of shock. It's a little bit of, disappointment because I was pretty close to playing in, in the Wimbledon final and so for me the first thing I did I just sat down in front of my locker I mean had I won the match I would have gone to the gym and properly cooled down and started getting myself ready for the finals but now that the tournament was over I just sort of sat there in, in, in uh, disbelief I also had a chaperone a drug testing chaperone with me which was um which was lovely someone who of course, had to watch me shower after work, and had to be with me at all times to take my urine and my blood. So I had to do what? a I had to do a drug test after after a seven hour match. So was
2: that a that random? Was that, was, was, that of... was that random, or do no, you think they? Not like,
1: you know, I think what they're after each they're, as, as the tournament progresses, each person that lost in the first round, there's 64 people lost. 64 people had to do a drug test, and so I sort of knew it was coming because you can see them in the in the locker room. He signed the sheet. um, But the fact that I just played for seven hours was brutal, and I I couldn't go to the bathroom because I was pretty dehydrated. So it it took took a little bit longer. I mean, I wanted to get out of get out of Dodge (laughs) within uh, within an hour, but it took probably two hours, uh, two hours and a half.
2: So how awkward is it to have somebody just standing around watching you naked? Like that's kind of weird, right? I mean, how
1: it's it's super awkward, but
2: I'm so used to it. How old is the guy? How old is the guy who's in charge of like watching Uh, you pee and like a naked guy. guy?
1: well, they're, they're all different. This guy, I would say, was probably in his 20s. And, and you know, I, I feel I feel he didn't want to be there watching me take a shower, but he was just doing his job. <laughs> I wasn't mad at him but, but, by any means, but it's just uh, the part of the game. it's actually a good thing that, that, that we get, we get checked, up, uh, checked up on a lot. So you want to, you want to keep the game clean as,
2: could, as it could possibly be. You're 6'10". And I'm sure you get asked Mm -hmm. all the time, if people recognize you, they probably think that you're a big white guy who plays basketball. You also grew up in North Carolina. You're athletic because you move around well on the tennis court. Do you ever see the contracts that these NBA guys are making and Um, and think to yourself, my God, I I could have played in the NBA too? You
1: know what? I did did grow up in North Carolina and and at 14, around 15 years old, that was when I decided to, to go with tennis. And I was actually a pretty somewhat it was a little bit tall but I was somewhat of a normal height and I grew when I was 18 years old like a lot six seven inches in one year <laughs> so I shot past both of my older brothers I'm way taller than them I'm a foot taller than my dad so I didn't expect that I was I didn't see myself going to I was that I was going to be this tall I think if someone would have told me at 13 14 that I was going to be this tall I might have uh, I might have stuck with basketball because so I was having success in basketball and a lot of success in tennis but uh, I went the tennis route, and I do think I, I I chose the right sport. But it would have been interesting to see if I would have kept honing my basketball skills. What what
2: what could have uh, come of it? So you went to Georgia, uh, and and you grew mm-hmm. up in North Carolina, and I, and I don't know a lot about your you know kind of becoming a uh, a high level tennis player. But it seems like tennis kind of. I don't want to say, like, some guys, like, when they're 13 or 14, they're already in a tennis academy working towards yeah. the fact that they're going to be a professional. You seem to have had yeah. a fairly normal upbringing, at least yeah. in the sense that you went to a regular high school. I mean, just looking at your bio and stuff like that. Yeah. When did you start yeah. to realize, man, I'm really good at tennis? Did it kind of come fast? I mean, how, how did this process play itself out?
1: No, it's a, it's a good question. It actually came much later. I mean, for the group that I took to professional tennis is – very unorthodox, I, I would say. At 13, 14 years old, I did not want to leave North Carolina. I wanted to stay here. I had a few coaches. There was a few players I could practice with, but the thought of going to any sort of tennis academy or anything like that or, or leaving the state of North Carolina never entered my mind. I wanted to stay home, and, and my goal in high school was, was simply just to play college tennis, and I was able to do that at the University of Georgia, an incredible program. I realized that I was good at tennis when I was 21, so that was my junior year in college when I became the number one player in college tennis. And I thought at that point, I'm number one player in college tennis. There's a good chance I can do some pretty good things on the pro tour. So I owe it to myself to to at least uh, uh, get myself a shot.
2: What years were you at Georgia?
1: 2003 to 2007. I went all four years, which is also very, very unorthodox. I mean, so there are some players that go to college, but they don't go all. I went to all four years at, at Georgia, mainly because I, mean, I could have turned pro after my junior year. I, I was good enough, but I didn't want to leave Athens. It was yeah. just, it's still like my favorite place on earth. It's the most fun place you could have, you could ever be at. So I wanted to, if I had a fifth year of eligibility, I I I, uh, I would have stayed.
2: So I think that's the early, the ending of the David Green era, right, uh, at Georgia. If exactly.
1: I'm, if I'm... It was like Green, Pollock, guys, and, and those guys.
2: Yeah, okay. And then so... Matt
1: Stafford sort of
2: came in. At the very, at the very the end of that. So how does mm-hmm. Georgia tennis player girl attraction compare to Georgia football player girl attraction? Like on campus, did people know who you're, you're 6'10", so you stand out. Yeah. But did people like yeah, the girls, yeah, were they actually, impressed by you?
1: It actually was, wasn't too bad. I mean, because fortunately our teams were really good, uh, especially my junior and senior years. We were the dominant team in the country. We won the national championship my, my senior year. So we were getting a lot of publicity and we – for college tennis, we we draw more fans than than, than most programs. It's a very storied program. The facility is amazing. So, you know, we're drawing at a regular season match. We're getting fifteen hundred people, which I think is which I, which I think is pretty cool. And the NCAA tournament itself, my senior year, was in Athens, the final sixteen. And funny enough, the guy that I lost to, Kevin, I, we we played his team, University of Illinois, in the finals, and we had six thousand fans at that match, barking and drinking people drinking beer it felt like a football atmosphere so georgia tennis um is pretty big on campus Not obviously not nearly as big as football as far as the girl attraction goes i wouldn't i wouldn't put it right up there with football but it's just not too far behind
2: we're talking to john isner so i went to uh for people who haven't been to athens uh, i was down there for the years that you were there i went to the tennessee georgia game in 04 georgia won uh, in 06, mm-hmm. Tennessee came in and came back from like a 24 to seven deficit, if I'm not mistaken, and won 51 yeah. 33. It was an amazing, you know, game. If you were a Tennessee fan, that was back mm-hmm. when Tennessee actually could win some games. Um, what <laughs> would you sell? What would you tell people who haven't been to Athens about why they need to go? I started off the show today saying that college football, in my opinion, is what America does better than any other sport and Southern college football for the experience of a Saturday on campus is the best for people who haven't been, how would you sell Athens?
1: Oh, it's just, the town is amazing. The town, the town sells itself. Go downtown, you get on North campus, you get on Broad Street, Lumpkin street, the bars are happening. There's people all over the place. If you the weather's perfect. I mean, a football game, you know, just that, just as it is in Knoxville, I mean, Knoxville is absolutely beautiful. So is Athens. you go to the football game in October, you're going to have perfect weather, not too hot, not too cold. There's, there's just a, a great energy in the town. I mean, it's SEC college football, and especially now that Kirby Smart is, 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 is at the helm and the Georgia program is really, really on the rise right now. So I, I think it's just, I mean, it's my favorite. I mean, I tried to go back at least one time a year for, for a home football game, and I've done that, I've been I've managed to do that the last four or five years, and it's just still my favorite thing in the world to do. It's For me, it's a nice break from tennis, but anyone, even if you're not a college football fan or a football fan in general, going to a game, a big game in Athens, Georgia, is, is something special.
2: Where were you for Georgia-Bama, the national title game?
1: Well, see, I was at the Rose Bowl. I went to the Rose Bowl. It actually worked out perfect for, for uh, in my schedule because I, the Australian Open was, was upcoming, so I went to L.A., and... I think I left for a tournament in New Zealand on January third or something. So I went to the Rose Bowl. Saw How that amazing game, was the game. Rose
2: Bowl experience there? Because I mean, that game against greatest, Oklahoma was phenomenal.
1: Greatest game I'll ever see. Maybe the greatest sporting event I'll ever go to. And I actually was not disappointed at all that I was missing, missing the national championship game because I knew even if Georgia won, nothing could top that Rose Bowl game. So, but I actually had business to take care of. So I was in Auckland, New Zealand watching the national championship game. And so that that's where I was. And actually, the time change wasn't even bad. It was The game came on at like 4 in the afternoon or something like that. So I wasn't up in some weird hour watching it, but that was a pretty devastating game to watch. But the fact that I was at the Rose Bowl and saw that game, uh, it was absolutely incredible. I mean, that place, if you—if anyone's never been to the Rose Bowl, I'm going to try, to try to check off the bucket list, because I'd never been there before. Obviously, Georgia never, ever plays there. So the fact that I got to see that game and go to that historic stadium and
2: see that ridiculous um,
1: game against Oklahoma was was amazing.
2: So in Auckland, uh, in New Zealand, where are you watching the game? Are you streaming it somewhere? Do they have it on in a bar, no, or like a hotel, in, like
1: down down under in, in in New Zealand and and Australia? They show football. They show NFL every single NFL playoff game. They show the college football playoffs. So it's just I was just in my in my room uh, in my hotel room watching it. I'm not a big Going to bars and watching games, especially games that I'm really, really invested in. I, have I, I, I,
2: I said that fully, exact thing on the show like, earlier today. Yeah.
1: It's the most overrated thing in the world being in a crowded bar, drinking beer. and you're, You end up not even watching the game because people are talking to you. It's, it's miserable, actually. So, Georgia football and the Carolina Panthers are my, are my two loves. And so, when I'm watching those, when I'm watching, those, when I'm watching my, my two teams playing, i make with at most a couple friends in front of my own TV.
2: We're talking to John Isner. Um, he was obviously in the epic five-set match in Wimbledon. What comes now? Like, uh, So you are back. You're around the 10th in the world. You've had a lot of success, obviously, at Wimbledon. You've had uh, a great deal of success at the Australian Open, I think, as well, combined. Uh, can you win the U.S. Open? How do you prepare to try to be able to do that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I do think I, I can win it. I mean, I, it's, If I'm doing the right thing, if I'm on the court playing the right way, I'm very, very disruptive. I think I, I think I showed that at Wimbledon. And actually as well as I did at Wimbledon Grass is not my favorite service. My favorite service is is a hardcore. Um and the last time I played on hard court was in uh, Miami in late March and I won that tournament, which which was a very, very big tournament, which at that time was was still the biggest tournament I've ever won in my career. So playing at home in the States and playing on hard courts is, is really my bread and butter and the next Four tournaments I have prior to the U.S. Open are at at home in the states on hard court. So historically for me, it's always been a, a good part and a good part of the season. So I just have to play it right, do my schedule right, not not overplay. Need to be fresh for the U.S. Open and give myself the best chance to uh, do well there.
2: So last question for you, I saw you made a stir in, in Europe because, or in England because you yeah. said, hey, if Trump wants to come watch me play at Wimbledon, yeah. I would be happy yeah. to have him there. Now, this was crazy to me because, uh, you know, like to me, if the president wanted to come see me do anything, I'd be like ecstatic. Yeah. If, if the White House yeah. called and they were like, hey, Trump's a big fan, will you do your show, yeah. or Obama was a fan or anybody else, I'd be at the White House yeah, at exactly. like the minute, right? So were you yeah. surprised that that turned into a story?
1: No, not at all. I knew it was going to turn into a story. I mean, I knew when the reporter asked that question, I knew I I took his bait willingly. Yes. <laughs> so I mean, what, what I didn't say, if it was President Hillary Clinton, I'd love to have her come watch me play. But yeah. I knew because I said President Trump, it was all the people on Twitter and all the you know, tennis Twitter and people, people, people don't like that. People don't like that. I, I said I would love to have Trump. Come watch me play, and I knew that was going to happen. I don't really care because I think uh, people have gone crazy. So, <laughs> as you, you well know, I follow I, I follow your Twitter account.
2: Do you feel that <laughs> as an athlete? That like sports used to be this place where you could go and kind of chill, and everybody oh, could escape yeah. the craziness. And now you guys have gotten swept up in the craziness as much as everybody else. Where when you say, yeah, "Hey, uh, yeah, I'd be uh, fine for the president to watch me," it's like, "Oh my god, I can't believe he said that."
1: Yeah, yeah, it's it's incredible. I mean, I I got, got so much. Hate on Twitter for saying that. I mean, I said all the mentions I got when I said that. I'd say every ten mentions, eight of them were bad. You know, people people reaping me, calling me this and that, this and that. It's actually it's pretty funny to read. I, I know you read it all the time. So when you, when you see people write you, I, the only thing I can do is chuckle. And uh, that's just how it is. That's just how it is nowadays. I guess.
2: We need to get you on again as the U.S. Open gets closer. Outstanding stuff. John Isner, go follow him on Twitter, uh, John, at John Isner. Uh, Good stuff, my man. We'll talk to you again
0: soon. All right. See you later. Thanks for having me. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart, the professional parts people. Oh, 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 oh right.